The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Alex and Wade are heading metaphorically to the Granite State this week to seek practical insights from Rob Cordeaux at McLean Asset Management. Will Rob impress Alex and Wade to become a repeat guest? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Retire with Style. I'm Wade. I'm joined by my co-host, Alex, and trusty sidekick. And we're continuing our series this week with part three on the topic of time segmentation or bucketing for retirement. Uh, But we're moving away from theory into real world application today. We have a special guest, Rob Cordeaux from McLean Asset Management. And in terms of talking with advisors from McLean, Rob joins a distinguished list of past guests have included Brian Bass, uh, Jason Rizcala, Stephen Pamonti, Jessica Wonder, and Alana Light. So number six on the list, it's been too long, but uh, Rob, you do represent the New Hampshire contingent of McLean Asset Management, and we're very happy to have you on the show, so welcome. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, Rob, thank you. We wanted to catch you before skiing season started, because then right. we'd we lose yeah, you. Kind of <laughs> getting, getting close, although this week it's up in the 70s up here in, uh, in New Hampshire, so we're excited about that. Yeah, it's going to be warm here in in, yeah. in the Mid-Atlantic, at least this weekend as well. You're right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So is it, is it motorcycling instead? No, I've got rid of the motorcycle this year, so no more motorcycling for really? me. Really? Yeah. Come, come ask me again next spring. I'll probably have another one. <laughs> Was it a conversation between you and your wife? Yeah, yeah. No, no she enjoyed it. <laughs> Just too busy to do that's all. Nah, I'm messing with you. Yeah, all right. Enough. But yeah, I think just to get started, if, if Rob, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, and I know you've got a number of designations, so just on the professional side, but but also on the personal side, who is Rob Cordo? Sure. Yeah. Um, I've been doing financial planning for 27 years or so, since the mid-90s. Uh, we have an office up here in New Hampshire, uh, so basically a satellite office of McLean uh, in Bedford, New Hampshire. So it's three of us that work out of that office. Um Certified financial planner, RICP, CHFC. So uh, on the personal side, just my wife and I don't have any kids. We love to borrow other pe- people's kids and hang out, and uh, then we can give them back at the end of the day. We can spoil them and <laughs> be like grandparents. And uh, But no, we, my wife and I love to be uh, outdoors, biking, hiking, camping. We're, we're big outdoors people. Uh, so that's kind of me on the personal side. But uh, on the professional side, we, we love to get really deep and in-depth in financial planning with clients. We like to do a lot of tax planning. Uh, so we're very tax-centric in the way we we look at our allocations and the way we look at planning um, and try to just really be holistic, in-depth planners when we sit down with clients. So that's sort of the you know the overall approach that we try to take. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think you and I have that same sort of background of really being more interested on the the numbers side of the the financial planning world. And when Alex and I were talking about 
who could we bring in to talk about the real world application of, of time segmentation? Your name came up because you have had the opportunity to work with clients. Now, it's not necessarily the go-to strategy that you use, but when someone takes a RISA and, and identifies as time segmentation, you've had the opportunity to build some real-world practical experience with how to actually then implement a time segmentation strategy in real life. And so we're, we're excited to have you on the show to talk about that. Sure, yeah. It's, it's as you mentioned, it isn't really what we go out pushing I, you know i listened to your prior um podcast on just the general concept and i think i would agree with that that in essence it's a behavioral approach uh, but when we find somebody whose risa their personality fits this type of strategy uh it can be a perfect solution for them so uh, there are cases not a lot but we have a few where we've implemented time segmentation strategy Great. And, and let's kind of walk through that. Or go ahead, Alex. No, I was just going to say questions. what, what, yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> uh, it's good, 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 good. I need that medicine to be honest with you, Wade. <laughs> but what, what makes it the sort of behavioral approach in your mind? Cause yeah, we, we said it in the, in the last podcast. It's not something that's, you know, a better optimized outcome on an Excel sheet relative to the other strategies. I think that's a, a misconception by some folks. It really isn't. To me, it's more of a of a framing thing. But what, what in your mind makes it more palatable for some folks? You know, I think it's, and you know, as we discussed, mathematically, if I take a multi-bucket portfolio that has, in aggregate, a 60-40 allocation, and I compare it to a single bucket, traditional portfolio that's a 60-40, from a risk-return profile, they're going to look the same, right? The math is the math. So it's hard to say that this is superior than a non-bucketing strategy. But I think it can help clients to be able to cope with loss sometimes a little bit better, certain clients. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Imagine that, that Alex, you were my client. You retired next year and you had a $2 million portfolio. And we put you in a 60-40 portfolio, so 1.2 million is is in stocks and 800,000 in some sort of bond or fixed income approach. And then we have another 2008-2009 meltdown, right? Stocks lose 50%. You at the end of 12 months we meet, you've lost 600,000, you're at 1.4 million. I think it's hard for any retiree who just started and they're a year into it for their for them to take that sort of hit on their nest egg, and they're viewing it as one lump sum, the nest egg. So their one bucket lost, you know, 30%, 600000 and And that can be hard for us to take, whether you're a savvy investor or very sophisticated uh, or not. Either way, that's kind of a panic-inducing moment. I would guess even for the two of you, what you know about sequence of returns risk that you would you would be feeling quite uh, stressed out at that point, right? Knowing that I never stress. I never know, stress. Of course you don't. No. Wade, maybe. Me, yeah. never. But knowing <laughs> that, you know, from a sequence of returns risk standpoint, that was the worst possible outcome. Year one, we had one of those type of years. And what I think the bucketing strategy does is it allows us to 
place assets mentally. Again, it's a mental framework for placing assets in different buckets so that we can help delineate some of the things that, so the longer-term assets are somewhat distanced from me if I place them in another bucket. And I'm focused on my short-term bucket, which is covering my next three years, five years, whatever length I've picked. And, and somehow that is easier to swallow for a lot of humans. I think, I think the human brain takes a look at a portfolio that has a lot of different functions, right? Think about our portfolio. It has a function of providing short-term income. It has to provide long-term growth. It has to keep up with inflation. It might have to provide legacy goals. It's got all these functions. If we can separate them in buckets for some people, that allows them to say, you know what, I'm not too worried about that long-term piece. That's for years 11 and beyond. I'm not going to touch that for a while. I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to change my allocation. And that's kind of the key for me is for certain people, it keeps them in their seat, keeps them from doing something they might regret from an asset allocation standpoint. Um, and I, so I find it to be very valuable as a psychological tool, if you think of from that standpoint. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And actually, in the, the last episode we did, Alex asked me about the true liquidity aspects of bucketing. And I think you just gave a much better answer about that than I did in the previous episode. That with the idea of true liquidity, it's about earmarking different buckets or different assets for different goals. And really, I think what I heard you say was that short-term bucket is earmarked, I mean, I, <laughs> to short-term goals. But then that's really helping with that true liquidity thought process because now this this other bucket, we know we're not going to have to tap into it. it. It's for these long-term goals. And that's it's maybe the same concept, but I really did like the way you expressed it, that it has time to recover. We don't, when we have that true liquidity mindset, we're now not as panicked by keeping things in different buckets because we're not having to see in the same bucket as everything else this big loss. It's easier to maybe mentally articulate in your mind, no, this is going to be okay because markets do go up over time and, and this is a separate bucket I don't have to be worried about right now because I'm not going to need it until year 11 or whatever the, the case may be. No, I, know, I, Think of it too like, like uh, an actual bucket. You know, If I have a bucket that has a spigot on the bottom and it's open on the top, uh, if that bucket's on a diving board and it's bouncing around to represent a volatile market scenario and I'm opening up the spigot to take some money out of it, that's sort of the one bucket approach. That's unnerving to a client to say the same bucket that I'm pulling money out of, I'm also losing 30% of it out the top of the bucket. But if I have three buckets on the diving board and one of them is down near the pivot point, and that bucket has a cover on it. That's my short term. It can't, no matter how much we shake the diving board, nothing's going to come out. That's mm -hmm. the one with the spigot. The other two buckets don't even have spigots on them. It just helps the client to just feel a little bit better about taking money out of a portfolio when they've, they've segregated those buckets in their mind, if that makes sense. Wade, I, I do have a question for Wade. Wade, didn't I tell you Rob would be good? 
Yeah, yeah, he's convincing me. I, I thought time he's like a natural. Was not my style, but he's convincing me to do time simulation now. Well, people have always told me. A lot of people have told me I'm a face for radio. So you know. yeah, yeah, hey, 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 that's our line. Come on now. No, no, it's it's great. I never heard that. You know, from the standpoint of the trampoline, that's it's a good little story. But you're right. I mean, if you really think about it, if you have one big bucket and water comes off the top, you're thinking, I'm losing water. But if you have the same amount of water across three buckets, but let's say two of them have covers on them, one of them doesn't, and you know that it'll rain eventually, but you know that you're going to take water from the one of the sp- from the spigot has the cover on it, you know that you're going to take water from that one. There's something comforting knowing that, hey, you know, this is where I'm taking water from. So uh, I'm I'm everything's copacetic even though at the end of the day it's the same amount of water right and you know sometimes we we talk about these sort of psychological or behavioral benefits and and sometimes we're very much numbers people here so we sometimes sort of poo-poo it we say well it doesn't you know there's no there there to the to the numbers but you know i think of it this way i I just recently got an e-bike, right? So I've had a regular bicycle for years, right? And I use it maybe once a year. So this year I get an e-bike and my wife and I both have them and we are going crazy riding the e-bikes several times a week. And everybody told me, oh, Rob, you're a sellout, an e-bike. Oh, I can't believe it. You're, you know, you're going to go fat and you're just going to, you know, forget it. It's your, but it's acceptance, acceptance. Exactly. But, you know, from a pure mathematical standpoint, I'm going to burn more calories on a traditional bicycle, no question. But it, it's not fun for me. I'm just not going to get on the bike. Whereas the <laughs> e-bike is so much fun. We've done some 50-mile days. We did a back-to-back two 50-mile days. We did 100 miles in two days. Just seeing incredible parts of the country, and we're loving it. So it's keeping me in my seat, right? I'm in the saddle because it's fun. Does it burn more calories? Is it better, you know, numerically than the pedal bike? No, it's worse. But it works for me, right? And, and so it got I you off a more dangerous motorcycle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> Which that you didn't want to admit at the beginning. That's, now I know why there's a motorcycle. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah, no time. But that's I feel like that's what bucketing or time segmentation is like for a lot of people, that it mm-hmm. just works for them, keeps them in their seat, it may not be any better than, say, a total return portfolio, but if it keeps them in their seat, keeps them from making a big allocation mistake, and keeps them invested, then more power to them. No, I, I, I think that's a valid point. And, and you speak of when an advisor is engaging in a relationship, it's not just about providing the advice that that you feel is in like the best that can provide them the the best possibility of having a good outcome, it's also providing advice on something that they will stick to. Because sometimes as an advisor, I'm sure you've done the mental calculation where you're like, I could present this one and you may very well do. You may just present three, you know, that that kind of thing. And, you know, whatever you pick, whichever one, right? You give it this sense of choice, but I'm sure there's sometimes where you may not even bring something up because you know that even though, it's 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 an efficacious approach you know that this person will not be able to withstand the slings and arrows of the market volatility and so you just kind of present something that you know they will follow through on because many times that's just as important 
Agreed. Yeah. If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. Okay. And and so what are the – tell? all right, so someone comes up with the recent when, – when, when it's determined, okay, time segmentation is an approach for this person. How do you go about then uh, determining – the strategy, if you will. And, 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 you know, maybe I, I should have done the wait. you may want to lay out a couple of strategies or, or whatnot, since we did that last time for people that may not have listened, just so they, they may know what, what strategies are there that, you know, advisors choose from. You're talking about for replenishing the buckets or. Yeah. Or yeah, we did it last time. That'll just come later, to... but yeah, let's, but Rob, okay. <laughs> let's Sorry, addendum yeah, yeah, yeah. to the question though. Let's talk about Someone comes in and they're still, say, five or 10 years away from retirement. We could maybe talk about that first. And then a second scenario, okay. someone comes in and they're at retirement. How, how would you approach both of those cases if their style is time segmentation? Right. Uh, you know, I often bring this back, and sometimes the client brings it up, the whole concept of sequence of returns risk, um, and sort of tying that into this asset allocation dis- discussion and the bucketing discussion. Um, and, and, of course, it's so critical the few years prior to retirement and at retirement. If a client is genuinely concerned about sequence of returns risk, we might choose the length of the first bucket based on trying to mitigate sequence of returns risk. So rather than maybe someone who might be looking at just a one-year or a three-year, we might be looking to go out to five, six, seven years into retirement to try to sort of lop off that that uh, chart that you put together, Wade, that shows the, the years and how much impact each year has on retirement outcomes in terms of sequence of returns risk. So... We sort of look at the length based on several factors. One, um, risk and how much we want to reduce it. But also, sometimes we're tying that in with other income sources. For example, I, I met with a client a couple of months ago, and they very much wanted this sort of consistent income coming in. And they were in their early 60s. They had pensions coming in in their late 60s. They were starting Social Security at age 70, and they were looking for some sort of fixed solution for about eight years. So we worked in this strategy of a, of a CD and bond ladder, or sort of a hybrid, uh, where we covered income for them for about eight years, and that was their short-term bucket, but it also simultaneously gave them a smoother um, floor, if you will, of guaranteed income that helped with at least one of them wanted more of a guarantee from their RISA score. So it's sort of a multi-pronged approach. We're looking at risk. We're looking at other guaranteed income sources, trying to find what's an appropriate um, length for the first bucket uh, to try to work it in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then like with specifically the, you said partly CDs, partly fixed income, how are you going about like actually selecting what what would be used for that bucket? Yeah, I, I definitely believe that that first short-term bucket should be about as guaranteed as we can get it. 
So again, I'm not looking for bond funds. I'm not looking for individual corporates. Or, so it would either be U.S. Treasuries or it would be FDIC-insured CDs uh, or it would be a, a guaranteed annuity like a MIGA, something that, that could uh, allow us to rely on that income. Right. Getting back to our illustration, it's got to be that bucket's got to have a cover on it. It's not going to pop off. And that, that's the idea behind that. So lately with interest rates higher, uh, we can put together a five, six, seven year bond ladder or CD ladder where the average yield is north of 5% and the, and the clients like that. I mean, that that works well. It would have been tougher to accomplish this 10 years ago when interest rates were a lot lower. Uh, it would have been a harder sell. I think it was a harder sell. I, I remember talking to people 10 years ago about bond ladders and the interest rates were so low that, that some of the clients just said, no way. You know, I just can't, can't embrace that sort of low interest rate. So... Yeah, and in that case, I guess it's so that they just end up investing more aggressively because they didn't see any point in any sort of fixed income. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I met with one of those clients just last week, and we had talked about this approach maybe six years ago, and I presented it, and they felt that the rates were just too low. We spoke about it again last week. And they agreed, yep, let's do it. And it, the only difference was now we're talking about uh, a CD ladder, a bond ladder that was yielding 5% versus 1% some years back. And uh, that was enough for them. And in their mind, they, they wanted to lock in sort of a period of time. And they're not necessarily, and I found this with a number of people, uh, they haven't necessarily embraced bucketing as a permanent strategy. So they're not planning to keep this in place for the next 20 or 30 years. They simply want to get past a period of time. In my first example, it was get them to age 70 when their pensions and Social Security started. Or it might be just to get them past the first few years sequence of returns risk. So for some clients, it's they don't really have this idea that, well, we're going to keep replenishing it. It's going to be a rolling bucket strategy where we're pouring money from bucket three to bucket two and two to one. And so I think that varies quite a bit. I think that's the part that I've found the most challenging about this is every client is unique. It's hard to come up with a rock solid model like, oh, here's what my bucketing strategy looks like. It looks like this. Here's the length of bucket one, the length of bucket two, three. And here's how we replenish. Here's how we do these intra bucket rebalancings. It's just hard to do that because every client has so many unique things going on in terms of other guaranteed income or concerns or trying to bridge a gap. Or So that part's tough. It's tough to come up with a model per se. So yeah, that That's an interesting point too because right, we're always, I frame time segmentation as you're always going to be rolling out or replenishing those short-term buckets. But maybe another kind of compromise style time segmentation is you to help manage that sequence of returns risk in early retirement. You you set up your short term bucket and then you just see how things go. Well, in that the context of a social security delay bridge, you maybe already intended not to extend that bucket. But in some of these other cases you're describing, it maybe you were kind of thinking to use a time segmentation approach, but then ultimately 
you decided not to replenish the short-term buckets. You just sort of, once you got through that early part of retirement, you transition into more of a total returns approach at that point, which in terms of the Risa styles, that could be somebody who's near the dividing line, or it could be for a couple, one spouse is more time segmentation, the other is more total returns. Interesting way of getting into compromise there. Yeah, uh, ag- agreed, Rob. And so it, it is that more of a bridging kind of thing. We were touching upon a bond tent, stra- a tent strategy, you know, previously. But what? How do you view the for for client? Well, not how do you view, but how do clients react when they have this earmarked for the investment part of their portfolio? What what are what are the what are the give and takes? And what I'm trying to get at is: are there sensitivity? with regards to their willingness to take on more investment risk because they have this in place? Is there the same sensitivity as if they didn't have this in place? Is there less, et cetera? What, what, what do you find? It, that's another example where it's different with every client. Some yeah, client, no, I get it. But yeah. What's the context of what makes it different? Yeah, I think some clients want to place sort of this this locked-in bucket as part of their bond allocation, if you will, fixed income allocation. And they want to incorporate it as such. Others say, uh, I want this to be completely separate. Um, maybe like someone might view an emergency fund. They don't even want to count it in with the allocation. So they just want the initial bucket to be completely separate from the rest of the allocation. And again, you talk about a psychological benefit. If you're doing this when someone first retires, in a way, it's almost like extending their paycheck, right? Their paycheck, whether they were W-2 employee or self-employed, it was fairly consistent. It was reliable. They didn't worry that it was going to disappear in most cases. So this bucket approach helps them to sort of ease into the risk of retirement, to go from accumulation phase to decumulation phase, right? Mm-hmm. They're, the first few years or the, whatever length we choose – allows them to continue getting a paycheck. And it's like, just like when we're in this accumulation phase, we can stomach volatility a little bit better because we're like, well, I'm not touching that money for a while. And that's that's sort of the approach that, that kicks in. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly, Alex. No, no, I, obviously, effectively, results vary. Some people don't consider it as part of the bond allocation. So if they were... If they were happy with a 60-40 portfolio, if they were, if a 60-40 portfolio was psychologically appropriate previous to the laddered strategy, they would still want that with the laddered strategy in place. You're also saying some folks are, are recognizing that, look, at the end of the day, it's one big bucket per se, you know, no matter how I partition it. And because I have already this allocation to fixed income, I'm willing to take a little bit more risk on the on the equity side especially if you know it's five years plus on on the extension you know that's that's kind of what i'm hearing yeah does that make sense agreed and i i had one client who brought it up he 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 liked the whole idea of the the first period that was guaranteed this is the client who wanted to bridge that gap from 62 to 70 mm-hmm. and he said uh so since we're doing that uh i would think that i should be able to take more risk on the on the rest of the portfolio right so he brought that up and, and we went into that discussion and we did we we increased his risk uh on the sort of total return side a, a little bit more uh to accommodate that and it, you yeah. know, getting back to your point earlier about 
in the prior podcast about this being like a rising equity glide path. If you don't mm-hmm. replenish and you're just pulling from that short-term bucket, every year you're having a higher and higher percentage of stocks, right? So that, I think, works really well for the folks who want to mitigate sequence of returns risk. That risk is sloping down over time from year one in retirement. And what's happening is their equity allocation is sloping up over time as they're pulling from the short-term bucket. So it sort of has this natural way of killing two birds of one stone. I can address the psychological piece and I can mitigate some sequence of returns risk and I can steadily move into a rising equity glide path, which gets them back to where I would like them to be to have a more, a better mathematical chance of getting a higher rate of return, yeah. a better outcome. It gives them a sort of scaffolding during the, during the fragile decade. If, if Yeah, exactly. Wade, thoughts? And that, that's great. And uh, yeah, I, back to the question you were asking earlier as well. So the part, part of this is maybe one of the answers is people decide not to extend the bucket. But if you are working with a client who is thinking to have more of a rolling bond ladder approach where they're going to replenish their short-term bucket, how do you approach deciding when it's appropriate to refill or replenish your, your short-term bucket? You know, it, it usually comes where we address it annually. So we might be rebalancing for asset allocation purposes more frequently. But in terms of the, whatever you want to call it, intra-bucket rebalancing or replenishing buckets, we usually visit that only once a year uh, so that it, we don't have to just be constantly addressing it. Um, and most clients have been okay with a discretionary approach where we get to the end of the year and we look at what's happening and we run a financial plan, we see how they're doing in terms of hitting their goals, and then we assess whether, so let's say equities have done well uh, in the year. We might look at it and say, well, you know, we could rebalance, move some money from the long-term bucket over into something shorter, and, you know, we could extend basically another year. So if if our first short-term bucket was, was seven years in length, we're a year into it. Now it's only six. We could push it out to make it seven again. Uh, or we could make an adjustment to the allocation. Or maybe the client's spending a little more than they thought they would. And maybe we increase their payout and we keep it at six years. We don't extend it to seven, but we bump up the payout. So once again, it gets back to it's different for every client. I think that's the toughest thing as an advisor that the biggest complaint I have against it is it's a little complicated to implement because I I have to customize it. I can't just create a cookie cutter. So it's so hard to create just a simple model that's easy to replicate. No, I I think, I I think what I'm hearing here, and I said in the last podcast, uh, there there's echoes up to me, total return distribution decisions. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's all these sustainable withdrawal rate strategies, right? There's all these, you know, rules with regards to distribution. And and wait, remember in the podcast, one of my things was, I, you know, in reality, there is not an advisor that practices their, you know, that, that well, maybe there is, but a grand ma- great majority of advisors do not read like Begnan's book and and implement these withdrawal strategies to the book you know, to, you know, tailored to the book because those, those are, it's just not how the world works. 
and mm-hmm. I and I, but in the investment literature, especially the media liter, the you know the media driven literature, it's all kind of trying to horse collar you into these strategies that no one really does because they're just too damn robotic. And I think it's the same thing with deciding when to replenish buckets and the like. You know, we talked about three basic strategies, but we spoke about them not from the standpoint of you can do, you should do this, this or that, but just in a general sense, this is how levers are. This is how levers get pulled. But we we truly believe it really, you say it's up to the client, but I would say maybe, I think we're saying the same thing, but I'll say it differently. It's the, the financial plan kind of helps determine what you should do next. Forget any hard and fast rules. Those kind of go out the window other than like from a framework perspective, we're trying to achieve something like this, but it's going to change because we're going to run the plan and we're going to make we're, we're going to be path independent and we're going to make whatever decision makes the most sense for you at that moment from a financial plan. Now, I realize, Wade, and maybe when you're writing this book, these books, I don't know what goes through your head, but I realize not everyone has the luxury of having an advisor to, hey, run a financial plan for me. You know, and it's not a matter of running the numbers or knowing the numbers. It's also a matter of sitting down, having the time and and crunching it out. And so that's when rules maybe are, are somewhat more helpful from a directional standpoint. Uh, that, that's what I'm that's yeah. my takeaway from listening to, to Rob. <laughs> right. The, the rules are more putting some sort of structure around seeing what's feasible. And, and if you're going to simulate with Monte Carlo, you have to have clear rules about what you're going to do when. It can't be right. ad hoc in the research. But no, in real life, yeah. there's flexibility. And I think Rob's answer, you reflected that. We talked in the last episode about when to extend the ladder. And we said the, the approach that we tended, at least I tended to favor in the research was this glide path approach, where if you're above your target, you extend. If you're below the target, you don't extend. And I heard that in your answer with you run the financial plan. If there's still a high probability of success, that's another way of saying you're above the glide path. So that's when you might think about extending. We also talked about market-based rules, where it was the one example I used was if markets were up in the previous year, you, you think about extending. Or if you're doing it at the end of the year, you could say if the markets were up this year, extend. If the markets were down, maybe hold off. And so I'm hearing kind of the, yeah, the in the real world, it's sort of taking these concepts and then using them in a more discretionary manner rather than strictly applying a rule where if if the market was up 0.01%, you extend. If the market was down 0.01%, you don't extend. It, it, there's more more discretion to it, but it's, it's guided by the, that sort of sense of here's what we should be doing, but let's actually just see what we're, we're actually comfortable <laughs> doing and if there are any tweaks or adjustments we're making with the spending goals and so forth at the same time. Yep. No, I, I think you summed it up well. That's exactly it. Curious if you should be looking at a Roth conversion or what a Roth conversion even is? Head over to mclaneam.com slash Roth to get McLean's free ebook. Is a Roth conversion right for you? And learn about when you might want to do a Roth conversion and when you might not. Just head over to mclaneam.com slash Roth to download your free ebook today. That's great. And what, what are there any clients that, that have started with a, like a, a sustainable withdrawal rate? There's market volatility. They say, I want out of the market. And you say, hey, hang on. Why don't we try this approach? Has, has that occurred as a way to kind of like don't 
don't hit the reset button because this is <laughs> when mistakes are made getting out of the market. Why don't you yep. do something like that? Yeah, you know, I did. I met with a client probably a month ago, and she came to me from another advisor. You had a hell of a month, it seems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, she said, I've never been a fan of bonds, always hated bonds. My last advisor tucked me into bonds. I hate bonds. Not <laughs> you know, that's a type of Wow. Wait, you're an advisor? Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's what that's what she said to me. Right? No, no, no. Right. But but she you know, she has not been happy with her bond portfolio. She's trying to do something conservative and her and bond, is it bond funds or individual bonds? They are bond funds. So they took okay. a beating, right? In the past couple of years. Sure. She's down on the bond side, she's probably down twenty uh, percent. So okay. uh, she's you know, she's like, you know, this was supposed to be kind of the less volatile side of my portfolio and I'm getting killed here. So we talked about incorporating something like this, just coming up with a ladder approach of something that was fixed. And we ended up taking about half of her bond portfolio and putting it into a ladder. And so she loves the idea that it's guaranteed. So it's a CD ladder, and she she's ecstatic that we made the adjustment. She wasn't keen on doing it, so I didn't even recommend doing it with her whole portfolio. If there's a bond recovery, I want her to be there for that. I want I want some of the you know what happens with sure. the bonds. Uh, so, but she sort of liked that hybrid approach that she could feel better about the fixed income side. It was more reliable. And we didn't even really talk about whether or not we're going to extend it. I, I, like I said, I haven't even been through a year with her on this one yet, but <laughs> we're going to address that at the end of the year uh, as to whether or not it makes sense to extend it or not. And we'll use that approach of looking at performance, financial plan, and seeing if, seeing if it fits. No, that's great. Uh, I, I guess the other piece, and, and look, we, we have a trading desk where you know we, we do all of that. In fact, we on Retirement Researcher, Wade, we had, I don't know if you remember, but Jason Dye actually did a whole workshop mm-hmm. on, okay, you want a bond ladder? Pick up the phone, dial this number. You know what I mean? Like right. <laughs> direct gov, you know, direct, what's the bond Tre- site for you? Treasury whatever. Direct. Like yeah. treasurydirect.gov. Like we went through the whole kind of step one through step 20, you know, kind of thing. Uh how what what are the the administrative calisthenics needed to sort of set this up because i i think it's a little different i i think folks are are you know could be th- listening to us thinking okay i want to do this and they don't have an advisor they're going to do this themselves but they're like okay i know how to buy a mutual fund i go to schwab and i just put in a ticker symbol and off i go and i hit buy or, or something like that right how different is that to set up a bond ladder yeah i I think it is different. Um, I think it's so critical for clients not or investors not to um, conflate a, a bond fund with a bond, not to mix the two, right? There's a, there's a huge difference between something that's guaranteed. And, of course, that's what we're trying to accomplish with this. We want that first bucket to be as liquid, as cash-like as possible, right? So we, we need something that's guaranteed, so staying away from bonds, lining up maturities the way you want it. Um, I don't know that it's that it's rocket science, but it's more. It takes more work than just oh, here's a diversified bond fund, um, and they have to figure out what's a good fit. No, I agree. Do, do any of the folks that you recommended this to do you use like the 
the target maturity funds or anything like that, or is it you just straight up you call the you call actually the bond trading desk over at yeah. Schwab and you yeah. say this is what I'm looking for. What do you have in your in, in your sort of inventory, et cetera? Yeah, it's the latter. We, we're looking for something latter, L-A-T-T-E-R. Uh, we're looking <laughs> for um, something that's guaranteed. So we call the trade desk. We find out what's in inventory. And that's why we sometimes end up with these hybrid approaches. We might be looking for a CD ladder that's seven years in length, and we came across this. And I don't know, I think it was five of those years we could get CDs, but the other two we couldn't. So we grabbed U.S. Treasuries for those two. So now we have guaranteed income for all seven or eight years, but it's a mix between the two. But okay. I just find now, that to be, it just feels like the whole thing would backfire if I had a something that was variable in that first bucket. In fact, I, I, I agree. I, I've seen some uh, so-called bucket approaches come in to us, clients who came to us, and the advisor had used an 80-20 model for the long-term bucket and a 20 <laughs> for the short-term bucket. And it just sort of defeated the whole purpose of it. Right? Yes. It just backfired. And so I am not a fan of that short bucket uh, having any any volatility associated with it. No, that's just kind of a, a lazy a lazy person's version of Correct. Uh, of doing it. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, what I, I since I ha- since we have you and and you have you know great expertise on the tax side, and we will be doing an arc on tax dis- ta- distributions and tax efficiencies and all of that stuff, and we'll have you on. But I, one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen folks make when they pick up individual bonds is in the muni world. Uh, they have this sense of, you know, you, you can get in the habit of chasing yield and it's a creep. It doesn't happen all at once. It creeps up on you before you know it. You lo- you lost sight of the fact that this was a bond ladder for income, steady, reliable income. And you're trying to just chase yield. And, you know, even on CNBC, uh, it's always like yield, yield, yield. Right. And so you can go crazy on that. But where I saw that folks made a lot of mistakes when I was looking at statements and then making proposals off of that was just the alternative minimum tax on munis and how you know they become subject to it. And then at the end of the day, even on an after-tax basis, they were just kind of like, you know, you didn't know what you were doing. You, you effectively got sold these bonds. And when they're not appropriate to then sell them in the open market, if need be, this is, the munis can be very illiquid and, and such and such. So just in, in an overview, what, 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 what are some issues of potential pitfalls if someone wants to build this up with just munis? could be very appropriate when appropriate, but, you know, I, take it from there. Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Not wanting to uh, – we don't want to let uh, the tax tail wag the investment dog, right, or the tax tail wag the yeah. allocation dog. Right, right. So from a risk perspective, that's always sort of superior. I'm looking at risk first. And then taxes, we're going to want to optimize to the degree we can, but we're not going to ignore risk to do it. And we've, I've seen the same thing with, with, uh, muni portfolios. I've seen clients come in where, uh, they lived in a certain state that, that had some fiscal difficulties. And, and because it's more favorable to get munis in that state, that's what they did. They loaded up and they were concentrated on one state's uh, municipal bond issues and that state had some financial difficulties and the munis tanked and so they were so focused on the tax piece 
that they were forgetting that they just made a massive concentration mistake. So that's that's one mistake I've seen, um, especially if someone lives in a state where it's a high tax state, but there aren't a lot of issues. Um, you know, there's some smaller states with smaller concentrations of people. I think of Maine or, you know, there's not a lot of cities. There's not as many municipalities as like a New York or a California or, you know. So I, I think depending on the state you live in, you might need to spread out a bit more and not just concentrate on the one state, just from a diversification standpoint. Uh, so that's one consideration that I look at for sure. No, I, I, and again, mine has been like, they didn't look at the after tax sort of yield. They, they, they're so focused on the the before tax yield and then, they, and then they load up on it so much and, you know, before you know it, they have a problem. But again, that was a little side note on bond ladders. When you're looking at it, you can say, okay, munis are incorporates and they're somewhat secured and sure, I've diversified ac- across regions and they're rated as such, but you have to look at the after tax yield and I, I've seen folks just you know, make make terrible mistakes off of that. Yeah, and it just adds another layer of risk. So now we have to assess that state or that municipality's financial stability to be able to assess whether how much credit risk there is there. I just, again, from my mind, simplicity, let's focus on uh, U.S. Treasuries where I don't have to worry about credit risk. Let's focus on FDIC-insured CDs where I don't have to worry about it. So it's just easier that way, and the clients uh, tend to appreciate it. Okay, I think we have covered a lot of important questions in the episode. Alex, do you have any last questions? No, I... I... I went for the munis. That was right. my yeah. swan song. <laughs> and with Retire with Style, don't forget that your tax-free interest on munis does get added to determine how much of your Social Security and, and Medicare premiums are impacted right. by additional taxes or surcharges. Friendly Boy, that's going to be a fun arc. I can tell already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah, but... You know, between you, you two, between you and Rob on taxes, it's going <laughs> to... <laughs> it's going right to the Smithsonian, those episodes. Yeah, yeah. Good to help people with insomnia. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Rob. Really, really appreciate right. it, man. Thanks for having uh, me. Appreciate it. Can I say you're the best? All, All right, right, everyone. Thank thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week on Wait. Retire with Style. There we go. Rob, did you, I mean, yeah, Rob, did you notice a little rhythm that he had in that, the intonation? Yeah, very nice. Very impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All Retire right. with style. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.